Rigorous teachers seized my youth and purged its faith and trimmed its fire, showed me the high white star of truth, there bade me gaze and there aspire. Matthew Arnold College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Honored today to be joined by AMI's marketing director, Larissa Kraft. Larissa, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? And our special guest today, I'm great. Thanks. Our special guest today, Oscar Ortiz Duarte, pioneer in liberal learning. Oscar, how you doing? Doing fine, thanks. Thank you guys for inviting me. Happy to be with you. Very excited about the work you're doing. Uh, and you're actually the first guest in our new Magnus podcast format, where we are interviewing pioneers in liberal learning like yourself. Wow, and so thank we're you. very excited to have you here. And thank you to our listeners. As a quick reminder, we've been working very hard to publish our text Uh something that you might or might not be reading in 100 years, you'll probably be dead, but your, your grandkids will probably be reading it. Sufferings and Glory of Christ, you can buy now by Father Owen Carroll. Anthony Esselin, who you might have heard of, says this book is Poetry of Christ Crucified uh, and really beautiful, beautiful read, especially this time of year. So get your hands on it. And that's our shameless plug for the day. Oscar Ortiz Duarte, you are doing a lot in classical education. You founded the School Mentor Program. You're founding Heritage Classical Academy in Houston, Texas. I have a lot of questions for you. So first of all, <laughs> why, why are you doing this? What, what is it that makes you get out of bed every morning to fight for liberal learning? Yes, well, fund fundamentally, it's my vocation. Um, and it's not uh, starting out my career. It's not what I really wanted to do. I wanted to go into college. I wanted to be a college professor. So um, I, I guess intrinsically, I really wanted to just teach. It's always been my passion to teach, uh, something I love. And my, uh, my bachelor's in, is in philosophy. So I love to talk about the big questions. So all those things combined. Um, and if you're, if you're hearing that, I'm, I live really close to a, a base. So those are jets flying over here. So, uh, But wow. all those things combined really... Um, made me a perfect fit really for the, uh, for the K-12 classical world. Um, I, although I didn't realize it for the first few years, uh, then after a couple of years of just being uh, mentored and then promoted into leadership positions, I, I came to the realization that maybe this is what God intended me to do in the first place. So I don't fight with the angel of the Lord anymore. Now I've embraced it. So I'm very happy where I am. <laughs> Good work. And, and you're, you're, you really do, are doing fine work. And I want to drill down into that. I want to know, before we get into that, what, in your view, is wrong with education? Why, why, does, why does education on the whole need some sort of counter-revolution? Absolutely. So I think that uh, we have lost focus of what really, uh, what the purpose of education is meant to be. And I see it every day in the classroom, uh, John, 
I don't need the data. I don't need the science, although there is very good science and data out there to corroborate what I'm saying. I just get to see what the, how the students respond to what's happening in their classroom in non-classical schools. And, and they're just bored out of their minds. There's no meaning to what they're learning. Uh, the approach to learning today is either from a point of skepticism or relativism. Uh, this view that uh, your truth is your truth, my truth is mine. So the, the children kind of catch on that. You know, they catch on that real fast, and then they become cynical by the time they're in middle school, and then nihilist by the time they're in high school, and by the time they graduate. Uh, they're really seriously wondering, what is the purpose of continuing this trajectory? Why go to college? Uh, it really, the answer uh, nine out of 10 times for most of them is simply for the sake of power or, um, you know, the ability to be able to buy a home or the ability to be able to uh, control my future. Um, so the real meaning or the depth of education has been um, removed from right under them. And they don't see why schooling or going to school is really that important anymore. Now, this is not a new thing, John. This has been going on for a long time. I remember when I was a child, I would ask my parents, I'm sure you asked your parents as well, why do I need to do this? Why, why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to learn all this? Um, and my parents, who I, I deeply love, gave me the standard answer, which was so that you can have a job one day so that you can one day buy a house or car, you can provide for your family. That's not a bad answer, but it really doesn't get to the true meaning of education. And that's why as a child, I really struggled in school because I just, I mean, I was just becoming self-aware of myself. Why would I start thinking about a wife and children, right? Which would happen 20 years down the, down the road. So uh, I tell parents that all the time, there is a much more deeper reason for going to school. And our children are so attuned to that. When you are able to uh, do teaching or education or schooling the right way, uh, you, can, you see a transformation in their lives. And that's the truth. And so much of what's, what passes for education these days is devoid of wonder. And you yeah. see it as a teacher, I'm sure. When wonder mm -hmm. is sparked, something new happens in a student that opens up Absolutely. a whole new world of reality. And you probably experienced this. I'm curious how you fell into a love of classical learning. You said you studied philosophy as an undergraduate. Well, what was the turning point for you? <laughs> so we have to go way back to uh, the beginning of everything. So I'm from Honduras. Um, I was born and raised there. I didn't come to the States until I was 20, uh, about 21 almost. So I was the old guy in my class. I mean, all the freshmen were 18, 19. I was the 21-year-old. Uh, who's just starting his education. Uh, coming from Honduras, which is an incredibly beautiful country, but it's also one of the poorest countries in Central America, there's this just uh, mixture of magical realism. I don't know if you've, mm -hmm. you know, magical realism. There's the jungle just close by a few mm -hmm. hours away. The beach is, is, you know, north from where I lived. Uh, my mother was born an hour away from the Mayan ruins in the tiny little village up in the mountains. Um, and there's just so much myth and folklore and all of that, I attribute the, the salvation of my own soul, if you will, right? The, uh, the keeping of my own heart, I attribute it to that, the fact that in our country, we're still very much uh, connected to our roots. 
So that was helpful to start developing a sense of wonder, although there weren't the, the books with the academics was not there. The uh, sense of wonder was definitely there as part of, of, of my culture. I also, my father, I have to uh, thank him quite a bit. He was a storyteller. Uh, although I wish he had been more of a storyteller, <laughs> I always clamored for him to continue telling us more stories. He he did tell us a couple of stories that, um, as I look back, I can see how they were seeds to my love of the liberal arts. Uh, he would tell us stories of Aesop. He would tell us stories, one of my favorites, the 1001 Nights of the Arabian Nights. Um, Salah Hadin was one of my favorite heroes for example. So all these things uh, together led to my desire to want to know and pursue something more than my immediate surroundings or the circumstances I was in. And just, just having a taste of that was enough, John, for me to say, I have to figure out what that is. And it wasn't until I was 21 and I got accepted into a liberal arts uh, school uh, they paid for my full tuition. That's the only reason I got in. Someone said, I'm going to give this guy a chance. Wow. I just, it, it transformed my life. Where did it, you do your undergrad? Where did you study? So for my undergraduate, I went to the University of Dallas. Uh, a lot of your viewers will probably recognize it uh, as one of the top uh, choices for a liberal arts uh, college. Small. It is. Yeah. 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 UD is among our endorsed institutions. Uh, yes. We've got at least one faculty member in the Magnus Fellowship, uh, wow. Matthew Waltz, who does a great job teaching for us. He's taught a few classes now. And I think Tiffany Schubert, also a senior fellow for AMI, has a degree from there. And so, yeah, we're proud to endorse UD, and they consistently produce great minds <laughs> like yours. So that's, that's a great success story. And so you're really a testament. And look at you now. I mean, you, you came from Honduras. Uh and and probably dirt poor, I'd imagine, got a full scholarship <laughs> to UD, and now and now you're you're a force for good in the world of education. Why did you choose K twelve mm -hmm. as the point to tackle? So we we chose college as our as our public enemy number one, mm -hmm. um, and I think you know a case could be made for both. But what is it about the K twelve where you think that's the low hanging fruit? Yeah, so, um, it, well, first of all, I just want to quickly clarify that um, my family was uh, the ones who had <clears throat> financial difficulties. Thanks to my parents getting a master's degree here in the United States of America, uh, I didn't experience a lot of that poverty that um, So you were not dirt poor. I apologize. I wasn't dirt poor. <laughs> no, yeah. I was not. I want to make sure I don't give every, uh, people the wrong impression. Um, but but I was surrounded by extreme poverty, the kind that you can't it's even hard to imagine. Um, I yes. worked for I worked as an interpreter for a lot of medical brigades that came down to the country. <clears throat> and we went into some of the poorest areas. And you, know, you can imagine how people just would live in dirt floors, <clears throat> shacks made out of uh, cardboard boxes, little children running around. <clears throat> Some children had like little uh, swollen bellies because they would eat dirt straight out of the ground um, and, and they were just wow. full of worms. So this is wow. kind of the conditions in which um, I was exposed to from a very young age because my parents wanted me to be fully aware of what true poverty is. 
Yes. Uh, we were blessed not, not to experience that because my parents were very hardworking people. And uh, the reason we all moved to the States is because my father managed to, after many years of working hard to find an opportunity for us to move, he found a job up here. So again, thanks to them and their hard work, I was able to come up here and get an education. Although they wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer, they were a bit upset that I went into philosophy. Um, I got an education that was fulfilling to me and actually gave me meaning. And to answer your question, that's why I went into K-12 because I realized, so let me just kind of paint to you a picture of what it was like for me to come straight into college uh, at a private university where all of my uh, peers, although they were a little bit younger than I was, had been um, schooled in private education. So a lot of my friends, uh, they had gone to very expensive, um, very elite private schools, 20 grand a year, uh, upwards of 20 grand a year to get an education. So me coming in without any of that uh, foundation, it was extremely tough for me to catch up. And you can ask my friends, it took me three years. I, I tell the story all the time. For three years of my college education, I was almost literally mute. Like I, I didn't, we would sit at the, um, at the commons and we would have lunch at the cafeteria and I would just listen. I mean, it was three yeah. years of just absorbing, 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 and just flabbergasted by the amount of knowledge that my friends possessed because they had had such great education, such great teachers. They had been exposed to good books and ideas and, and art and music, um, and I hadn't. So uh, that was an education in itself. That experience taught me that we really needed to go back to the basics. And if I wanted to help, especially disadvantaged children, um, such as our, our black and brown children that I work with now, I needed to give them that foundation that I lacked uh, in order to prepare them to really absorb as much as they could once they made it to college. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, to answer your question, hopefully that does. It does. Are you, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about the school mentor program that you're yeah. launching because <laughs> I watched the videos. I, this is great because you, you're, you're sort of targeting teachers. It seemed mm. like, in the language of teacher, which, yes. uh, and, and I mean, I mean the language of teacher in the worst possible way. It doesn't often jive with, <laughs> uh, with, with the classical learning tradition so much. And, and you're really, you're, you know, short snippets, <clears throat> practical, tactical <clears throat> advice for revamping uh, a school as, as an educator. So just tell us a little bit about school mentor program, uh, why and and where where is that going? Because I, I feel like it's it's a pretty important piece of the puzzle for us. Yeah, so um, I've had I've been very blessed to have uh, some great mentors myself as I was going through the transition of being a classroom teacher into leadership. So I was a, an assistant principal and then a principal or headmaster myself for for about four years, and um, those mentors were just extremely crucial to my success uh, in, in that, in a story of my, of my growth, if you will, uh, there were a couple of schools that I was asked or tasked with turning around. And this is one of the most difficult jobs that a school leader can have uh, 
most people stay away from it. They don't want to even touch a school that is rated an F, for example. And that's because the odds to turning the school around are just insurmountable. Um, nevertheless, because of the uh, mentoring that I had and my full commitment to culture, culture is really the key to transforming a school. I went in and we turned a school around from an F rating to a B minus. Wow. And uh, that was huge. And I, and I realized, okay, there, there are principles here. There are steps. There are things that a school leader and teachers can do to make a real difference within a year's time. And if you didn't come into that people, school. You didn't, sorry to interrupt. You didn't come into that school with a classical education angle so much mm-hmm. as let's take a bad school and fix it. Yes. And, and then also sort of import some principles of, of, of classical, authentically liberal education. Is that, is that about right? Absolutely. So my first Great. school was in Dallas. And uh, just to give you an idea of what uh, it was like, and um, it was a is it was a rundown building. Um, it was that the children were coming again. These are children with one one parent or grandparent because both parents are in prison or or a dad is addicted to drugs or uh, so. There's a lot of trauma that the children are coming from. Children who just you know there was feces on the walls. Just to give you an idea, I mean it was wow. it was a disaster. So I come in there and in three months, the school is completely different. And we had a team from Hillsdale come down and tour the school and they were just shocked. They couldn't tell. I mean, they were like, it's night and day. Okay. So how'd you do it? How'd you do it? Where'd you start? (laughs) Well, um, the, the hiring is extremely important. You have to have the right team for it, but you also have to give your team, uh, the ability to be themselves creative and they have to feel like, uh, you know, this is also their, um, their school. And what's happened, what's happening in a lot of schools, and I'm going to give you here the, uh, the secret sauce, uh, what's happening in a lot of schools, the students are setting the culture, not the adults. So the mm. students come in uh, because the adults don't want to be so invasive at times. And they want to, what they say is we want to allow the children liberty to just uh, create themselves or, or find themselves. Or you see all these nice romantic terms that they're not necessarily wrong, but I think they're misguided and leads to the kinds of school I was just describing. When you allow the children to determine what the culture of the school will be and what you've just allowed is not the children to control the school, but outside influences that control the children. Uh, because the children of this age, who are yes. their heroes? Well, it's, it's pop artists, it's uh, movie stars, it's uh, sports and athlete stars. They take those uh, standards of conduct that they see on TV or they hear music, and that's what they implement on campus. So that's a, a dereliction of duty, in my opinion, from the part of educators. We need to be there to not just teach them academics, but also teach them what is the right way to behave? What is, what is the way to behave that will make them ultimately happy and successful uh, in, later in life? And when we take the reins and we set the culture, and this is very important, it's part of our, our training every year when I uh, train the teachers is we are going to set the culture. And I want every child coming in through the doors to say, that they're entering Narnia. That's, exa- that's exactly the experience that they should have. 
Once they pass that threshold, they're no longer in the same world that they've been to. If they have an abusive family at home or if they're uh, homeless or if they're, I mean, whatever their background is, once they step into Narnia or into our school, they're kings and queens. And this is going to be an adventure and they're going to face some dragons. And we are here to teach them how to beat and defeat those dragons. So all of that put together really leads to just this when everyone's on the same, you know, on board and with the same mindset, kinder all the way up through 12th grade, you really have a powerful, um, what do you call it? A, a powerful recipe for yes. immediate and quick change. I mean, talk about empowering. I mean, and empowering is this weird buzzword that sort of plagues yes. modern academia. Yes. <laughs> but I've noticed that to the extent that this word empowering is used, Mm-hmm. There's a real lack of respect for the student. Oh yeah, and and by respect, I mean seeing in another the capacity to actualize me as a teacher, as an agent, right? Mm-hmm. And and when you really respect a student, that's mm-hmm. when learning begins, and that's that's when they sort of see a you know, or to taste just a little bit of what they're capable of as a learner. And as a peer in many ways, and that's just missing so much. So I was, I'm thrilled to hear that, that, that this begins with the elevation of the student yes. to a place of royalty. I think that's very beautifully said. Thank you. And- yes. And um, I, I'm glad that you point out the, um, the concept of respect and, and human dignity, because when we do not engage a child and expect more of that child, we're not respecting that child. We, we are not taking into account their human dignity. We are allowing, in other words, a, a, a flower to just grow in, in the most random and wildest ways that you can think of. And what you have in the end is just a, a garden full of weeds, right? That'll ultimately just uh, swallow right. up the entire project uh, as opposed to uh, daily applying ourselves to the upright growth of these beautiful human beings that need guidance. And you know what, what our teachers, it sounds counterintuitive. For some reason, we have forgotten how to parent. We've forgotten how to uh, raise children. Uh, our teachers, once they believe that, and they're like, okay, I know I'm going to have Mr. Ortiz support, and we're going to be, uh, right, we're, we're going to have his back if um, I need to say for an example, I need to be a little more strict in this area or I need to have much higher expectations. Uh, once everyone is on the same board doing the same things, the children love it. That they, they find themselves in an environment that is finally safe. Not one that is being determined again by the coolest kid, by the richest kid, by the best looking kid. Uh, so all those standards by which you are judged as a young child at a school, they're gone. And the new standards yeah. come in, which are the ones set by the teacher. And that's human dignity, uh, good grades, uh, the pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, and that, that rocks their world because then they take that home with them. And they realize these, these are two different worlds. I'm, I'm yes. transitioning back and forth every day. Yes. In these schools that you help, how, how much is a lack of fatherhood a, cause, a root cause of the problem? And Because I think this the structure that you're, that you're speaking to is really showing, giving them a glimpse of some sort of paternal order 
that they might not have experienced. And in my experience, young learners will respond very positively, especially young men will respond very positively to this fatherly order that they've naturally been craving their whole lives and been robbed of. You know, it's interesting that you point that out because the the number one thing, uh, not necessarily the number one thing, but there's so many number one things at a classical school. But one of the main things that our families point out to us about classical schools is just the overwhelming amount of male faculty. I mean, it, it, it's so uncommon. Yeah. They don't see it anymore at other schools. And um, and I'm not suggesting that um, our, our female teachers or our women teachers aren't doing a good job, but Classical schools draw, for some reason, also uh, men to yes. apply themselves to plow this beautiful field that needs work. And there's this, the, the, the dynamics are different. You are right. I have seen that. And the children respond to it really well. Both the boys and the girls respond to it excellently, uh, especially in a Title I environment. And Title I is a term we use for our disadvantaged communities yes. Um, yes. where children don't have parents. Right, whether it's mom or dad, um, predominantly it's dad who's not there, uh, or da- or dad uh, tends to be a womanizer. So um, yep. that's what they what they grew up with, right? There's this, especially in Hispanic cultures, there's this machismo that the boys are already starting to show close to by the end of fourth grade, entering the fifth grade, and there's this expectation at home that they, if they're going to be little boys or they're going to be little men, they have to be like that. And they have to, uh, you know, uh, flout the rules or disrespect authority and, um, you know, kiss a greater number of girls. And all of those things start already to have an impact on the child and a certain level of stress that really affects that child's ability to just focus on the things that really matter. So at a classical school, what we do is we start kind of breaking away those societal pressures that are invisible, but they're really affecting that child. And we, we create a sacred space. That's why we call it Narnia. A mentor of mine called it a temple, right? This is hallowed ground, and we are protecting the children from all of these influences in order to allow them to focus on what they should be focusing as children. They shouldn't be focusing on what you know the adults are doing right now out in the world they should have an opportunity to pick up a book and read it and cherish it and enjoy it amen um, so so this um, is my my last question before larissa jumps in here i'm sure yeah. you have a few larissa in the queue here but uh, and sorry to ask so many but i'm so fascinated by this <laughs> movement that you've begun so when you come into a school and rejuvenate renew its culture, as you've described, how then do you make the turn to, now let's read Plato. Uh, how, do you, how do you introduce the classics after that, uh, that oh. you've made, made the ground fertile again? And, and how is that? How do people react to that? Do you get pushback? Oh, this is a great question because you actually have to start on day one. You can't just do it slowly. Right. Um, in, in fact, I would strongly discourage someone to try to do it gradually because you're never going to do it if you try to do it gradually. And what I've seen, and it, it, it's heartbreaking, I've seen a lot of well intentioned people go into Title I schools uh, where our children are in the most need of supports, both emotional as well as academic. And uh, the argument goes for their sakes, because this is too 
too arduous of, of work. The academic load is too much for them. Uh, we're going to start very slowly and very slightly. What happens is that they never get there. The children never get there. The faculty never get there, never gets there. And, and you don't really have a classical school. <laughs> you have a school that's always trying to get somewhere, but it never does. So we go in all the way, 100% first day. We hit the ground running is what we call it. And um, our, our, we use a classical curriculum that's 100% certified classical uh, on day one. What do and you on use? Day one, yeah, and on day one, we start the academics strong. So we're not, we're not into this gradualism. We know yeah. it's going to be tough for them. We know it's going to be challenging. But if we really, one, respect them, two, believe they can do it, and three, give them the supports they need, they will live up to the challenge. It's remarkable how malleable children are and how rapidly they can take on something that is very challenging and get the most out of it. What's the curricula you use? Oh, right now as a secular school, so that's an important detail. We're not a Christian classical school. We are, we're yep. a secular public school. Um, we are using the Hillsdale College Scope and Sequence. And um, the Scope and Sequence is made up of a lot of different um, curricula. So, for example, we'll use Singapore Math uh, for a math program. We'll use uh, Pearson's Hall for a science program. Uh, we'll use Access Literacy for a phonics program. It doesn't all come from the same place. It comes from different companies. Um, and the reason we've done that is we've, the Hillsdale has curated the best types of programs for the kinds of schools that we're trying to open in the public setting. That's great. Larissa, mm -hmm. take it away. I, I've asked too much. No, you're, <laughs> you're fine. I've learned so much. Oscar, I didn't realize all of this about your schools. Um, Oscar and I recently actually were just talking about norms and nobility. And in it, he talks about the student and taking the student off dead center. And it seems like this is exactly what you've done is you've taken the student off the center, but in doing so, you've brought them up, you've elevated them. And I'm curious, could you give some concrete examples of some norms that you apply in your school? The student walks through into Narnia, into the sanctuary, in this temple, they go to their classrooms. What are some things that they can expect every single time? Like, do they yes. stand to speak. I don't know, just some examples that you can give of making this practical. This is fantastic because uh, first, uh, uh, an important detail. Um, so for our viewers who are watching, um, those are schools that I, um, I ran in the past. So I was a leader for those in the past. Right now, we're currently uh, trying to get a school authorized in the state of Texas that isn't in existence yet. So uh, I'm taking all the best principles, everything that I've learned in the last 10 years, um, running schools for others. And now I'm, I'm finally opening my own school uh, to show in many ways that the principles that I've learned and gleaned from trial and error and from mentorship really can go a long way to creating much better classical schools here in Texas and, and, you know, all over, if anyone wants to learn from us and follow our example, all over the United States. And that's Heritage but, Classical Academy in Houston, correct? Yes, Heritage Classical Academy. Okay, great. So that's um, heritageclassicalhouston.org. And everybody should check that out. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Because usually people go to the wrong heritage class. There's so many schools with the right. heritage. There's even yeah. a hospital in Houston called Heritage. <laughs> so people go to the wrong website all the time. Um, and so, so you're basically attempting to launch a pilot that's based on your years of work 
renewing broken schools. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's, that's a good way to put it. And the, the big public hearing is uh, scheduled to be in June. We're still waiting for the Texas Education Agency to tell us if we if we made if we made it to that round. That's the last round and it's a oh my gosh, it's a it's a very nerve-wracking. It's it's live stream. The public can be there in person or they can watch it. So I'll make sure to send the link out to you guys so you can uh, pray for us and and watch us as we get a barrage of questions from a board, a panel of 15 elected officials on why classical education is the best education and the future for the children of Texas. That's my hope to be able to make that argument. So do you have, you have students ready to go for this thing? Families obviously supporting you. Yeah, we have a uh, subscriber list of close to a thousand families right now. Uh, Of those 1000 families, we kind of estimate that um, 40 to about 50% are actually families who would want to enroll their children in our school. Um, Obviously we don't have all of the stats. So that's the next step that we're gonna do once we're authorized, we're really gonna find out, okay, how committed are our families to this? So far, uh, they seem very committed and very excited about that. But to answer uh, Larissa's question real fast, cause she really hit it on the nail. The key, so there are a couple of things that you have to do in order to turn a school around. Uh, I mentioned hiring the right teachers mm-hmm. and then training them, but then there's these regular practices that you have to commit to every single day, every single minute of the school day. These practices are what generate in, um, what I call the culture, the overall culture of the school, and ensures that the, the culture is actually determined by the teachers as opposed to um the cultural pop influences, if you will, the pop cultural influences of the outer world on our children. Um, so what are those What do those look like? Well, the, the first big thing that I strongly recommend school leaders do, um, and it's one of those battles that I always had with my own bosses in the past because they really never saw the importance of this, and yet they saw the results, which is remarkable, and that is the hallways. Your hallways need to be right? Outfitted to, to teach, to teach the children. They can't just be, you know, random flyers and all these corny, uh, what is it? Inspirational posters. No, no, no. We really need to pour a lot of our attention and devotion to good artwork. So if you had visited or toured one of my schools, you would have noticed that there was a collection of, uh, close to a hundred masterpieces from, um, you know, from the Baroque period all the way up to um, postmodern America. And it was, they were all canvas pieces and they were all framed. So we, we put a lot of money into it. Our families donated close to $70,000 to make that possible. So again, the children, as soon as they enter a hallway that looks like that, and this is one of the things I did at the Dallas school that I mentioned earlier, as soon as our children entered that building, the culture changed, the environment had changed for them. And that just had an effect on their own behavior. When you enter a museum, the same thing happens, right? You know that there's a set of rules that you need to abide by, behavioral rules. You can't get too close to the walls. You can't touch the paintings. You kind of walk the hallways quietly and with a, with a sense of reverence and respect. So we start developing already in the children a kind of a contemplative a practice of contemplation at a very early age. So that's one big step that I recommend. It does involve a lot of money, 
but um, it is going to change already the lives of the children because you're giving them an education without even knowing it. Right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're being exposed to the most beautiful artwork every day. We also put little tags next to them so that they knew who the painter was, what period was it painted in, um, and a little description on each one of those. So that's the first thing. Now, as they transition into the classroom, that's where uh, they have to do a couple of things that are daily procedures that the teachers practice with them every day. And guys, you'll be surprised as soon as um, as soon as three weeks into the school year, they have practiced practiced these procedures so much that the teachers don't have to be on top of them anymore. They just do them over and over and over. Sometimes the teachers will return to them, say, um, at a break, such as a Thanksgiving break or back in Christmas when they return from school, uh, from the Christmas break, excuse me, just to kind of brush up on some of these procedures. But for the most part, uh, they become so ingrained in the children that the school kind of operates like a the, the music of the spheres is what we call it. This beautiful harmony by which all of the planets just kind of move at their pace. And there's this uh, be beautiful, it's just beauty to, to watch them do that. Uh, and that creates for our teachers a lot of calm and peace when it comes to um, being on campus and working with the children and uh, creating an environment for everyone to thrive. It's exciting. So Heritage classicalhouston.org. I know we have at least one family of fellows. I'll just give him a shout out right now. Eric Black. He's got young kids. He's in Houston. I hope he's heard about this, but he, uh, I, I think he would be very interested to send his kids there. Oh, please. I'd love to meet him. <laughs> we'll send him your way. Yeah. He's a good awesome. guy. Um, now besides heritage Houston, you're, you're a man of many projects. It seems I want to hear about Hildegard college, Oscar. This is a beautiful idea as well. And it looks like there's a few good people besides yourself working on this project. Give us the elevator pitch for Hildegard College in Costa Mesa, California. Oh, great. Yes, absolutely. So Hildegard College is a uh, this what's called a micro-college, or I guess a way you could describe it is by calling it a micro-college. And it's this beautiful concept where uh, you, you do it in order to provide students who are looking for something a little more significant, something deeper, something more intimate, uh, and something that actually uh, matches their budget, very important, um, and making it available to them. So one of the reasons a lot of our, um, a lot of young people don't go to college is because they can't afford it. And that means having to get school loans and school loans means being in debt for the rest of your life. Uh, and that, that's just such a, already you're discouraged to even try. Uh, whereas in a micro school like Hildegard College, you're looking at high quality content, high quality professors, a liberal arts approach to learning, uh, a liberal arts focused uh, degree, and then at a much lower cost because you don't have the, the overhead that you would expect at a giant university with several thousand students. Um, it's just the professors, the facilities, and the students themselves, and there's and then small as well. So that's why I think Hildegard College is not only a great concept, but it's showing us the way of what education at, at that college level might look like in the next five to 10 years. So that'd be in-person education, BA in three years, students living off campus, sort yes. of a little economic slash liberal arts flavor. Mm-hmm. And you're going to open in the fall of 23, you said? 
That is correct. Now, just uh, to clarify, I'm on the advisory board for Hildegard College. Um, So uh, you would want to talk to Matt, Dr. Matt, who is uh, the guy, he's the visionary, really. I'm only there to support him and to promote the school as much as possible and and to give him some, um, some guidance if he asks for it. Uh, since I've been working uh, with, you know, I've been running schools with 700 to 800 students, and I've been hiring, uh, a, you know, close to 80 to 100 uh, staff members and managing all of that. So I'm there to be a support for them. Yeah, we'll have to have them on. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah, I would love that. <laughs> um, all right, what else you want to talk about, Oscar? I mean, I, as I listen to you speak, and as I hear your 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 work in education and what you've done, and I don't know how old you are, but you're not you're not too old. Uh, it seems like you've got a really bright future ahead of you. I mean, I would love to see, well, first of all, I would love to see the department of the secretary of education, you know, non-existent, but if there is still a secretary <laughs> of education in a few years, you should be it. I mean, I hope you get noticed <laughs> by the right people be- because these ideas are so beautiful, so mm. fundamental and have been so lost to everybody's detriment. Mm. And I'm so refreshed mm. to hear that you're bringing these back and implementing them in new ways that's having real fruit in the lives of young people. Thank you. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. What I, what I would say is that um, one of the reasons my family and I, we migrated to America. One of the reasons I love this country so much, and I think the principles that make your country uh, so beautiful and that we must, must do everything we can to ensure that we maintain is that um, and most people don't talk about this often, which is surprising, is the way to effectuate change is through the use of oratory. And it's mm. persuading, persuading. Um, that is the most effective way to win people. It's slow. It takes time. Uh, the, our new generation doesn't like that. They want things faster. Mm. Um, but if you want it to be a long and lasting change, you have to win the hearts and minds of people. So what I t- what I would say to all of our viewers and to all of my teachers and all the parents that that I work with is we need to talk about this. We need to talk about classical education all the time. We must promote it. We must find ways to be creative, like podcasts and uh, YouTube channels and uh, find ways in which we can begin the process of persuading people that this is the right way. And you know, we might get vetoed, we might not in a couple of weeks. Uh, that's still to tell. But if we do, it's not the end. We're going to continue working and making sure that we uh, persuade everyone in the State Board of Education, whether it's this round or t- 10 years down the line, uh, that this is an awesome education. Our parents are already rapidly on board. It's yep. mostly our, our, our elected officials who are still a little bit hesitant to accept this. I don't know if you guys saw that um, article, like people calling it a hit piece from the New York Times against classical education just a few weeks ago. Um, and it, again, it's like, it's been, it's been politicized, unfortunately. Whereas um, I have seen, not only since I've been doing this, but all the research and study I've done, uh, this is the one kind of education that both sides of the aisle, political spectrum, can be on board with. It's uniting and it is emancipating. That's the most important part for children, especially who find themselves in situations where there's very little hope for a bright future. This is the way. So, Amen. Yeah, that's what it's all about is authentic Mm -hmm. liberation. That's what we're all about at AMI, liberating the liberal arts. And 
And I think that's why people are so afraid of this movement, Oscar, is mm. because you said it, it's, it's about liberation. Mm. And that's exactly what the powers that be do not want. Uh, this, this system that they've crafted <laughs> is, not, is not so bad on accident. Mm. Uh, it's, designed, it's designed to cultivate a, a world of servitude. And, and classical education is, is the answer to that. It's the it's the one liberating force. So God bless your work, Oscar. Thank this you, thank you. Let's yeah. do a lightning round. Let's. Do, uh, uh, I know you're short on time here. Uh, favorite book in the in the canon in the Occidental canon? That's impossible. <laughs> That's an impossible question for a philosopher. Um, to, to quote Cooper in Interstellar, it's it isn't. What does he say? It's not impossible. It's necessary. All right. It's so, necessary. There you go. It's okay, ne- okay. So, so favorite, favorite book in the canon. Okay. So um, it, it's more of a theme for me because uh, it has to do with my own conversion to the faith. Um, what, part of my story that we didn't uh, discuss today is that I used to be an atheist for uh, nearly a decade. And uh, Plato combined with Augustine's Confessions, so the Republic and Augustine's Confessions, went uh, a long way to the conversion of my heart. And I would say those are the two top books on, on my list that I would read and reread and read until the day I die. Amen. So, yeah. Favorite book in Plato? Oh, play, well, The Republic. <laughs> yeah. 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 Great. Yeah. Yes. It's all there in book seven, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Larissa, you got a lightning round question? Well, this isn't fair because uh, you stole mine. <laughs> uh, I was going to read Oscar's tweets. As our Twitter manager, I was going to read Oscar's tweet and ask him what his favorite book is. <laughs> read it, read it anyway. And what, Oscar, I love your tw- I love your Twitter, by the way. Yeah. I, his, I oh, thanks. We I I just can't stand most of Twitter, and you are a you are a shining star in a Amen. darkness of. Gosh, I appreciate oh gosh, that, guys. Yes. Thank you. Amen. Where, what so, is your Twitter handle? Just shout it out real quick. Everybody should follow you at. Uh, o Ortiz Duarte. Yes, and uh, there are a couple of Oscars and Ortizes and Duartes out there. So yeah, it's... You're, you're not the boxer and you're not the former El Salvadorian That's president. right. Yeah. Oscar tweeted three days ago, I once met a man that refused to read any book except for one. He read it over and over again. Mm-hmm. He claimed this one book was all that was necessary for him to live. It's rare to find this kind of devotion to a book today. Do you have a book you love? Oh, yes. I would say the Confessions is that one book for me to read and reread. It's just, um, it's it's both a prayer, it's also worship, and it's philosophy, all in one, which is everything I love. Favorite translation of the Confessions? Oh, wow. Um, if you had asked me about the Iliad or the Odyssey, I'd be able to give you an answer. I haven't been very picky about translations for uh, the Confessions. Okay. Oscar, what is your answer to the Iliad and the Odyssey? Who's your favorite translator? Um, I grew up with, and I was exposed to Homer with uh, Lattimore. So that's okay. um, all time favorite. I enjoyed it. I've, I've read the Fagels. I did enjoy that one as well. Alexander Pope, if, if I want to wax poetic, but uh, Lattimore is definitely my favorite. <laughs> that's great. Uh, where do you want to be in 10 years? As far oh. as every, every, I mean, you're doing a lot. You got a lot of, a lot of burners going right now. Uh, which um, one would you want to see thriving where, and where do you want to be giving your time? Yeah, I would really love to see, um, and I think a lot of you share this vision, uh, I'd love to see public schools 
transition to a classical curriculum. And I'd love to see that in 10 years. Um, I'd love to see the majority of our schools here in America saying, we're doing it. We're all on board. This is the, this is the right way for, for our students. It's an ambitious goal. <laughs> it's beautiful. Larissa, you got any? I got a couple more. How was the commencement speech? Oscar? Oh, it was great. I got the video today. Oh, so I'm going to, I'm going to be sharing some uh, little clips on Twitter here. Great. Uh, yes, it, it Can... was a remind our viewers where did, where did you yeah. commence? Yeah. So this, um, this weekend, um, I had the opportunity and the honor to give a commencement speak to the graduating class of 2022 for, uh, Atlanta classical Academy, which is one of the BCCSI or Hillsdale affiliated schools. And a stunning, stunning group of, you know, teachers, parents, um, and a beautiful cathedral uh, in downtown um, Atlanta. And uh, it was just, wow, it was out of this world. And I got a chance to be able to, for 12 minutes, I made sure to time myself and not go above 12 minutes because I knew they all wanted to get out of there and they wanted to enjoy (laughs) (laughs) their parties that were coming up in the afternoon. So I said, for 12 minutes, I'll make sure I, I make a an impactful statement about what they can look forward to, how what they should be grateful for up to that point, and uh, some of the trials and uh, triumphs that they can expect. Mm-hmm. And I used Aesop's fables for that. And I think that was just the right touch because Aesop is so accessible and everyone loves him. Everyone knows who he is. So, yes. Yeah, that's great. All right, uh, I'm going to give you a little curveball here, and it's Uh-oh. actually a question I ask uh, potential employees in interviews, and I stole it completely from Peter Thiel, uh, who, <laughs> who who thought of this question. I think it's brilliant, but the the rationale behind the question is is that genius genius is all over the place. Well, it's really not, but genius is out there. Courage is what's really in short supply, mm-hmm. and so the question is. Tell me one thing that's that you know is true and nobody believes you or nobody agrees with you on. So one thing you know is true and nobody agrees with you about. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow, that's that's a tough right, one. Right because, before uh, your government hearing, please state this opinion. This state this opinion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think of how can I skirt that uh, question and be diplomatic about it, given that it's that's the no, best the brilliance you. of that question. The brilliance of that question. Yeah. That's right. Okay. One thing that Gosh, I don't want to do a cop out, but I can't. I can't figure out anything that because uh, I can think of everything that uh, someone's going to believe me on something, or someone's. I mean, there's. Is there really something that someone would not agree with me on? Yeah, that's or? a good point. I think yeah. you know we're we're someone sort of in, in the countercultural <laughs> business, I guess. So <laughs> somebody mm. will agree with you on anything, but one thing that most people think most people would dis- disagree with you on. How about that? Well, uh, right now in my own sphere and uh, going up to the State Board of Education in a couple of weeks, we have a lot of opposition and a lot of detractors uh, from the idea that a classical education is for all children. And this is this is this is a con- you know, it breaks my heart. It's controversial. But a classical education is not just for white children. It's not just for affluent children. It's not just for uh, a, a specific part of the world. Um, a classical education is meant to be a universal education for all children. So that has been um, a source of a lot of disagreements and arguments on Twitter, as well as in just in personal life as well. So there you go. 
You'll crush it. Don't worry. It's going to be great. I, mean, <laughs> I hope the, so. The main I'll, I'll objection. Link. Thank you. Please. We'll watch. Uh, the main objection that I've always heard, and I always have the same answer, you know, you get people that say, well, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that sort of education? Mm. And the answer mm. really is, and you know this from, from having lived it, but the answer is yeah. whatever I want. That's, right. uh, that's what you, when, when you have this sort of education, you can do yes. anything you yes. want. So yes. feel free to use that at the, uh, at your board of, uh, board of education meeting there. Yeah. I will, uh, John, I'm going to quote you. That's yeah. It. Go ahead, Larissa. Oh, well, I was going to change the subject. So you finish. Well, even uh, just to go back to Peter Thiel again. Right. Um, and I guess he's something of a firebrand. So you, you can stay away from him if you want to, but he's on record saying that, He's not in Elon Musk too. These guys aren't interested in hiring people with the standard business degree or mm. even college at all. What, what, and I can tell you this as an employer in other, in other businesses as well. We want people who can think mm. we want to hire people who can think their way out of a wet paper bag. And those people are few and far between. Yes. But if you can find somebody with a degree from, you know, any classical, authentically classical liberal education outlet, those people are going to excel at just about any job, even if they don't have prior mm. experience in the field because they can think. Mm. And so from a practical standpoint, the liberal arts are really where it's at. And, yes. and the most, you know, I haven't met very many really poor people with one of these liberal arts degrees, unless they're wearing a habit, honestly. Yeah. I mean, mm. if you can think you can do whatever you want and it shows. Yes. So yes. that's, yeah. that's my elevator pitch. <laughs> very convincing I, I we use it all the time with our parents precisely because we well one i am an example of that um and as, i mean we have a tradition of just civil rights and abolitionist advocates who whose lives were transformed because of a liberal arts education and they are the one of the biggest advocates and some of the advocates i quote the most um, in order to be able to, to draw people into classical and point at, look, Frederick Douglass, wh- yep. look at where he's at now. Look at Martin Luther King Jr. Look at W.E.B. Du Bois. Look at William Scarborough. Look at, I mean, there's just a, a plethora of examples. And they are the number one supporters of classical education as a result of what one can accomplish with it. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well yeah. said. Larissa, you have any last questions here for Oscar? I do have one more question, although that was a beautiful note to end on. But Oscar, I'm wondering, this is a question, actually, I'm poaching from one of my head mentors. Mm-hmm. When you are working with students who they might be terrible writers, they're not applying themselves, they act disrespectful in class, mm-hmm. what is one quality that they have that would give you hope that what you are doing is working? Yes. Well, um, there is this beautiful image that we use um, in the um, when I'm training teachers, and it's straight from Mark Twain. So you look at Tom Sawyer, and right there we get depicted a character that is just incorrigible. This child hates school. He is the uh, a thorn on you know on the side of every teacher, uh, even his own parents, and uh, or his or his guardians. And, and yet he is such a lovable and remarkable character because of its depth and sense of wonder. And uh, there's one passage that we focus on with our faculty at the beginning of the year. And that's where 
he hasn't you I mean, from a teacher's point of view, this child hasn't learned anything at school. But if you pay close attention to this one section, what is he doing? He is quoting from memory the entire story of Robin Hood. Wow. The entire mm-hmm. thing from memory. And it, it's just remarkable, right? That he loves it so much that he is play acting it. He is living through it. He's memorized it. He's, it's just, it's so beautiful. And that's what I, I, I remind our teachers of all the time is uh, d- don't get uh, thrown off by these artificial grades. You're in kinder, you're in first, you're in second. Sometimes, sometimes it takes our children two or three grades to be able to, for, it, <laughs> for the knowledge that we're trying to uh, teach them to really sprout and, and, and have an effect in their hearts. But the truth will never return empty. <clears throat> so it doesn't matter oh, if wow. that child doesn't yeah. look like they're not learning or growing or changing. The truth will never return empty. And that child may be in fifth grade. will just be so transformed by whatever you taught him in kindergarten. Uh, so don't give up. Don't give up the fight. So that's Isn't what I that's the truth. That, yes. that is so beautiful. And we all remember our very small handful of good teachers growing up, yes. don't we? Yes. Right? And we'll always be grateful. So be one of those teachers. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the way to do it. This is the way to do it. Great books, classics. It and Oscar, you are just the perfect advocate for this. And you're doing such a fine job. And we're so pleased to promote your work. And we wish you all the success in the world. Uh, with Heritage Classical, with with the Mentor Project, what's the YouTube link on that? School Mentor? School Mentor, yes. School Mentor on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Check it out if you're an educator and even if you're not. Really good stuff. And so thank you. thank you. Thank you. And this will not be our last interview on the Magnus podcast. Oh, yes. I hope not. Excellent. And for more, uh, visit magnusinstitute.org. Become a fellow today and join the counter roof. Let me join the counter revolution in education where we learn to speak really well in public forums. All right, Oscar, you're the man. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2022, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.